Today's what? The Kentucky Oaks. You know, day of Friday, uh, day before, Kentucky Derby, big race day. So they had one of the races at Churchill Downs just humming earlier. So it's going to be blasting as the races come along. John Von Tobel is here. Big show on the way. A lot of food talk today. A lot yes. of Cinco talk today. Uh, just want to remind you, Golden Circle has a great special on Fridays. They got the fish and chip special. 18 bucks, beer, battered cod, fries, and a choice of a brewski, a Dos Equis, right? Senko, come on now. Or you get a Heineken. Yeah. And you get to keep the glass. So that's a Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar's big special today, fish and chip special. We got a lot of, like I said, food talk today because it's also National Hoagie Day. We'll call it a sub, but we'll talk about the definition or the, I think the real name for hoagies. I think that's like a very tight regional term, but we'll get into that a little later on. Obviously getting you ready for VGK tomorrow, NBA and NHL tonight. We're going to talk to one of the ESPN announcers, Bob Bushusen, in just a little bit. Some of our regulars, Caleb Herring, is up at the end of the hour on some college football, some NFL, and a lot of NBA. So I know the theme today is going to be Mexican food, but i got to tell you, what a lousy thing to wake up to. I get multiple tweets about a just a horrific incident in my home state of New Jersey. Headline, hundreds of pounds of cooked pasta mysteriously dumped in New Jersey woods. What the frig's going on here? In uh, Old Bridge, New Jersey, which I have frequented on many occasions. One of my better friends went to high school there, and I worked in that area when I was working in newspapers. This is where it gets really crazy. So apparently 500 pounds of pasta just in the woods in this New Jersey town, a, a veterans park. And it says mounds of spaghetti and piles of other pastas, including ziti. I don't, that is such a New Jersey thing for the writer to go, you know, we got to put in, got to put in ziti. Yeah, that'll, put that'll, that'll, that'll get like, because honestly, spaghetti is not, are you a big spaghetti person? I don't like, Angel Hair like spaghetti now. I don't know if it's the texture or what, but I'm ziti's not just fan. objectively a better pasta. So I think I that like was ziti. like, hey, a 500 pounds of spaghetti dumped in the woods might not get people pissed off. When it's ziti, that's it's all it's all it's over. I like to picture like the like the forensic men like out there and like going through <laughs> it. They're like, hold on, hold on, we got ziti out here. Hold on, call the call the brass. Um, so two things here. First off, I did not realize the New York Post was so punny. I didn't realize like oh, this it's was a incredible. Thing. Uh, the what is it? A hasta la pasta. Yep. Or whatever. Or Pasta La Vista, excuse me. It has been solved, by the way. The mystery. Was, uh, they also wrote near endless possibilities. Yeah. So they figured out what happened. Oh, really? Yes. And I'd also like to <laughs> this, call in. The, the other crime is kind of tough to solve, but 500 pounds of pasta dumped in the woods? Come on. Cook pasta, by yeah. the way. I'd also like to call into their, uh, their journalistic integrity here. So in the original article, <clears throat> they say that a New Jersey town was awash with mystery after hundreds of pounds of cooked noodles inexplicably appeared along a creek bed, uh, creek bed excuse me, in the woods last week. However, in the update, in which they say that they found the man who was caught on a ring camera dumping the pounds of uncooked noodles. So in the original story, they're hey, cooked. But in the, the follow-up, they are, they are uncooked, hmm. which would make a lot more sense because apparently the story is he was moving them out of his mom's house. The unidentified man, who neighbors say is a military veteran, important detail, Likely discovered the massive load of carbs, chucked it in the wooded area because of its overwhelming quantity. Apparently his mom was either hoarding this or keeping it, and he had to get rid of it somehow. Was it expired? How about go to a food bank? I have no idea. Right. People don't need pasta? That's what I'm saying. 
But it looks like they're this, un- is a, this is a jailable offense. I think it is because also I just don't understand like the pictures make it look un like make it look cooked, right? Like those noodles look like they're bending and giving way, and yet we have it two different ways: cooked and uncooked. I don't know. Maybe it's both. But if he was dumping it, did he think like it's going to be easier if I cook it first? If I cook it, it'll, right, it'll break like, down more easily. It'll be gone in a couple of days. And by like the seventeenth pot, he's like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like this is it's all al dente, and I've got to get rid of this right now. I can't do it anymore. Even the ZD's got to go. ZD, unreal. Why would you do it? John, I'm not comfortable with that today. So can we just go, with, if I can remember and say it correctly, can we just go with uh, Juan Juarez Norte? Sure, if you want. JJN? Yeah, I was, I was wondering why you put that all in the rundown and then it, re- <laughs> then it hit me what it actually was. Yes. Okay, are you, you're, you're sure you're comfortable with it? Sure, I think my ancestors would be fine with okay. it. Okay, and you're not appropriating Juan Juarez Norte. Uh, my mother's maiden name is Norte, and okay. uh, my my uh, grandmother's maiden name was Juarez. So yes. okay, is that good? Are you more comfortable with John or Juan? Uh, I, I I'll go with. Uh, what do you vote for, Ari? There's no real like Jonathan. Got to like, be Juan in there in Spanish, is there? So yeah, I guess I'll go with Juan. Ari does not have a vote. He said Juan. I heard him. Okay, we're going. With that Juan. means Steve disagrees. <laughs> not in here. I'll just kidding. Not in here. Uh, so we got NBA coming out tonight. Boston, Philly, Denver, Phoenix. Boston, did you like what you saw out of uh, Joel Embiid and what turned out to be kind of a warm-up game for him? Uh, like not really, but it's it's what you said. Uh, you have so I thought I was listening to um, Brian Windhorst podcast, the Hoop Collective, and Tim Bontemps was on there, an ESPN writer who covers like the East Coast area, and he brought up a really great point, which is like, look. A lot of people thought that you want to put Joel Embiid, like, hey, you're working with house money, right? You got home court. Why play him in game two? Just let him rest until game three. But Bontemps' point was, look, remember, they had eight days off before game one. Embiid missed game one. So we're talking about nearly ten days off for Joel Embiid. You don't want his first action to be back at home and having to work those kinks out, have the game that he had in game two, right, in game three, and then potentially be down 2-1. So – I think it was more about getting him out there and getting his legs back underneath him. You know, I don't think you could really love it, but I'm also somebody who, full disclosure, bet this series under five and a half and thought that the Celtics were going to end this thing pretty quickly. So I, I still oh, think that's they right. can. Right. You still got a chance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't – we were talking about this when, uh, when I was on my, uh, my podcast, Hardwood Handicappers, wherever you get your podcast. Can I plug it? I did it. Um, Hardwood Handicappers. That one of the things that really like, sticks out is, like, if you were to say which one is more realistic – Philly replicates what happens in game one or Boston replicates what happens in game two multiple times. They go on to win the series in four and five. It's actually pretty realistic. I think more realistic than most I think at least that Boston would end this thing pretty quickly. I took the Celts after game one series minus 195 after they were minus 550 to open. Yeah. Now I think the 550, a lot of that was MB not playing built into it. Right. But or the mystery of when he was going to play. Yeah. I like where I am. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think – if the Celtics, if you looked at the five games prior to game two of this series, they were playing terrible defense, but we know that they're better than that. And a lot of it, when you actually watched it, was a lot of lackadaisical play as opposed to schematic issues for them, right? The teams weren't finding weaknesses in their defensive scheme and exploiting it over and over again. It was, hey, off of a made free throw, let's let these guys just run down floor and we're not going to pick anybody up and get a free bucket. Hey, let's not close out as hard or let's leave our feet when we're not supposed to or let's just do, let's take chances when we don't need to. And that led to some poor defensive returns. 
I think when you're talking about what's transpired so far, like when you see game two and what they could do defensively, that's what they're really capable of. Lakers lose last night, blown off the floor. We had talked about the zigzag, but it's much more than the zigzag. Man, do you know the numbers behind that trend, by the way? Not just the zigzag. So this game one, loser of game one at home, so essentially the, the higher-seeded team at home, loses game one. In game two, they are 20-1, and one, no, 21-1 and one straight up, 20-2 and two against the spread the last 22. It's kind of good. It's a little ridiculous. Like virtually guaranteed. Yeah. 127-100. Anthony Davis nullified 11.7 rebounds. Golden State hits 21 three-pointers. Yeah. It's pretty good. It is. Too many threes for my liking. You're going to fire up 40-plus threes. I don't know. Oh, you made 21? Yeah. That's kind of good. Uh, and I, I was a creep at the outing yesterday that we were both at where I was standing, oh, gotta get to that. That's standing right. by myself. That was, that was the most highfalutin event I've been to in a long time. Made me feel real good about the way I treat my pets. Yeah. Well, again, that's coming up in about 50 minutes. But, yeah, John was just standing off to the side. Uh, not a lot of TV access. A sports person didn't think about TV viewing on the beautiful patio he set us up on. But, uh, yeah, you were off to the side watching the Lakers and Golden State. Um, look, I, you know, I, I kind of think like, this is one of those things where Golden State's just got more in their arsenal. So, like, you watch game one, right, and you see that they start their traditional starting lineup and, you know, everything's kind of getting mucked up into the paint. They're running Curry off ball a ton. They're not really putting the ball in his hands, and their offense is really disjointed. It doesn't really work. So the fourth quarter of game one, what do they do? They're like, all right, screw this. Curry, ball's in your hands. You're running pick and rolls. Everything's going to go through you. And what happened in the fourth quarter? 14 nothing run when they're down 14. They get back into that game. They eventually lose. But you saw a much better effort in the fourth quarter from Golden State than you did the entire game. So then you fast forward to game two. Curry's got the ball in his hands again. He's attracting double and triple teams every single time down. And what's happened? He gets 12 assists in the game. They get, everybody else starts playing a bigger role. They start Jermichael Green, maybe on accident, too, because Kevon Looney got hurt. But what happens? It forces AD and others to guard down the perimeter for four guys as opposed to just three. It completely opens up the floor, and their offense looks incredible. And really quietly, Steve, what the Warriors have done really well, going back to the series of Sacramento, they've been playing incredible defense. Game one against L.A., was an outlier, and then if you look at what they did against Sacramento, a defensive rating of 110 against the best offense in the NBA, held them to almost nothing. That's an offensive rating, by the way, like equating to what the Spurs did in the regular season. I think this, I think the Warriors just got more in their arsenal to go back on if they want. Follow the guys on Twitter at Steve Cofield and at me, JVT, or tweet the show at Cofield and Company or at ESPN Las Vegas. Yep, Cofield along with uh, JJN, Juan Juarez Norte. Want to get into a little hockey, a little VGK, getting set sure, up for it tomorrow. Bob Wischusen was on the call of the game the other night, has been uh, one of the ESPN play-by-play voices for a while now on hockey and lots of other sports, and Bob was up on Cofield and company. How are you, sir? Good. How are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. We're in a good mood because uh, Golden Knights you know, put out a good performance, and we're being entertained by the uh, NHL and the NBA playoffs. But right out of the gates, before we break down the game, this has always been a point of contention on this show. I like this. The other guys don't because they're cranky and grumpy. The, I, I saw, I was watching you talk about the open for the Vegas Golden Knights game the other night, and it was like, it went on for a while. I'm, I mean, like, you go to Vegas to see a show. Yeah. So, I, you know, I enjoy the show. I mean, every other arena, and look, everyone's got a kind of a fun way they bring their team out and whatnot and unique, but... That's truly unique. You're not getting that anywhere else. So I don't know if the folks in Vegas like take it for granted because they see it all the time, but 
those of us that parachute in once in a while and don't get to see it all the time, oh, it's pretty entertaining. Yeah, I think it's a, it's one of those things that people lean on to dislike the Knights. You know, the hockey purists are like, let's just get to the game, stop with all the entertainment. But I actually think what the Knights have done over the you know the six seven years they've been around, adding all the sounds to the arena, all the different elements, has maybe helped some other teams and helped the sport of hockey in general. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a great crowd. It's a great atmosphere. They're fired up. Obviously, it's the playoffs, so you would think the atmosphere would be great. But, I don't know, to me, that's to it. I mean, I, I look forward to coming to see it. So, i got to get you on uh, this topic, too. We, in this town, people react to winners. And I know most towns will say, hey, they're only going to show up for winners. Vegas really is like that. Whatever the hot thing is, they're going to show up for. The Raiders are going to be fine because it's the NFL. They get, you know, 50% tourists. But we're entertaining bringing baseball here and maybe a really bad organization in the A's, what do you think of building a stadium for the Oakland A's to come here if they're not going to be a winning franchise? I, you know what? I kind of want your general take on baseball and the, the popularity right now and the growth right now and the demos right now. Well, I mean, baseball obviously skews to the oldest demographic in terms of fans. Um, I think the pitch clock was needed 10 years ago. Yeah. And they finally, but I mean, baseball does everything on a, like a 10-year delay. So <laughs> I, I think the things like limiting, throwing over to first, um, I think, you know, like putting a runner on second base. And I mean, I think all that stuff is stupid because to me that screws with the way you actually play the sport. But the pit clock doesn't screw with the way you play the sport. It just tells you to play it a little quicker and really to play it the way that all the baseball purists all the old folks would say they grew up watching it. Right. Like, go YouTube the game from the 60s and 70s. That's what they did. They played as if there was a pitch clock. Time it. Like, the pitcher gets the ball, he looks in, he nods, he gets the sign, he, you know, the batter doesn't leave the batter's box. When I was growing up, uh, Mike Hargrove, I remember his nickname was the Human Rain Delay. Oh, yeah. Because he stepped out of the box all the time and, like, adjusted all of his equipment. Well, everybody does that now. Right? Like, we, every guy was the Human Rain Delay until they finally put the pitch clock in. So, you know, I, I think they have made some smart moves, although it took them too long to do it. Um, but I, I have a hard time believing a team that comes to Vegas is automatically going to be still a losing franchise because now you're going to have revenue streams that you never had, will never have, and certainly don't have right now in Oakland. So... I mean, the NFL shares all that TV money, and they cap everything. So obviously, in the NFL, it's not about who the richest team is because they share the money, basically. I mean, obviously, the Cowboys have more revenue streams than the Buffalo Bills, but still, I mean, right now, like the Bills are a better team than the Cowboys. So they've proven in the NFL they can do it that way. Baseball doesn't do that, right? Baseball doesn't share the revenue, and they have no salary cap. they got a luxury tax. But... So you have to develop those revenue streams. You have to be able to sell luxury suites and sell tickets and, and have a TV you know, package with an audience that people will watch. But to me, that's waiting in Vegas far more than it's ever going to be now in Oakland. So, yeah, move the A's. You know, Oakland has really given up on them. So let's talk about game one. Uh, for you, what was the big narrative between the Oilers and VGK? Well, I think it, it kind of played to the theme of what the series is going to be which is the star power of the Oilers and the power play of the Oilers against the depth of Vegas and can Vegas stay out of the box. 
and Vegas has the right formula to beat a team like the Oilers, in my opinion. I, I picked Vegas to win the series in seven. Wow. Um, I think they will outlast the Oilers. Now, I could be wrong. I mean, and look, my bosses probably might want me to be wrong because who would want <laughs> Connor McDavid to continue on in the playoffs, right? Right. So, just my own take, over a seven-game series, and because Vegas is the least penalized team in the NHL, in the playoffs, even after the regular season, um, the Oilers, I think, need power plays to win because their power play is the most unstoppable power play we've ever seen. But if, if, the, if the series is played five-on-five, five, I think Vegas' depth is legit. And I think that's kind of how you saw game one play out, right? Like there was the star power of Dreisaitl. He scores four goals. You know McDavid's going to get his at some point during the series as well. But if you can keep the rest of the team in check, don't give them those power plays. Just stay out of the penalty box and count on the fact that over seven games, you play four lines relentlessly. It can grind the team down because, I mean, getting Stone back and getting Carrier back bolsters the bottom six. The top six is already real good. Um, you know, all four of those lines can score goals. So I, I think Vegas has a really good formula to not just compete with Edmonton but beat them over, over a seven-game series. Bob, you mentioned the power play a couple of times. So game one, obviously Edmonton gets two out of three. Winnipeg actually did pretty well in the power play in their series with Vegas, too. Was game one more about Edmonton, or is there an issue with Vegas' power play here in this series that could hold them back? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know that you can ever say that if Edmonton is scoring against you on the power play, it's because your penalty kill isn't doing well enough. Yeah, They score against everybody. I mean, everybody. Right, like first round against LA, that series, you know, went down to the end. And I mean, they, they were, I think they scored nine power play goals in like 16 tries. I think they were 57%. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, normally, in a normal year in the NHL, if you're in the upper 20s, you're going to lead the league. They were double that um, in, in the opening round against the Kings. So, their power play is something that we've never before, really. I mean, in, in today's day and age, with big, athletic, mobile, shot-blocking defensemen, and we're goaltending, you know, the, the athleticism of the goalies um, has gone over the years. I mean, yes, you go back statistically, they do have some company. You know, the, the uh, Canadians of the late, um, the late 70s, and obviously the Gretzky, Curry, Messier, Oilers, they were also great power play teams. But this team, in more difficult circumstances to score against better depth of talent, is better than all of those teams. Um, so, to me, it's just it's just the greatness of their power play and all the ways that they can beat you. I I would have a hard time criticizing a team's penalty kill if Edmonton is scoring some power play goals against them. I think it's just inevitable. Bob Schusen is up on ESPN Las Vegas on Cofield and Company. Had you ever been in person for a goal like Dreisaitl scored where he flips it off the uh, back shoulder of the goalie? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that is now, you know, I was talking to Brian Boucher about this. My partner, of course, played in the league um, at that position. And there have been some tweaks with how goaltenders are positioning their pads to hug the post. And there are some different philosophies of, of how how it used to be done, how it's done now, and how it's done now kind of leaves that up, like, up by your ear, over your shoulder spot vulnerable. That is a soft spot. Yeah. And these players today are so good, 
so accurate, so smart, so savvy, that if you give them just a crack of daylight, I mean, you know, put a teacup up there and they can break it. So, yeah, like that's, that's the, like the bank shot off of a goalie or shooting it from a hard angle, basically fire it right at the guy's ear and almost count on the human response that he's going to, like, shake and move his head a little bit because there's a, a puck coming right at his temple. Yeah, like, I mean, that's a strategy. Yep. And Dreisaitl obviously kind of finessed it in there the other night. But, yes, there, there are plenty of goals now scored in the NHL, like basically from the goal line, um, because they will, you know, fire it right up at that little crevice and, and find, you know, a little crack in the dam. So after game one, Drysaddle said it was nothing that the Knights had done. It was mostly on Edmonton's side. Did you see any flaws aside from, you know, lack of depth and having to rely a lot on Drysaddle and McDavid? Was there anything else you didn't like in the game from Edmonton that may have led to that loss? Oh, I mean, I, like, to me, I, I, I don't think – and look, I guess a team can say that was about us. To me, that's not giving Vegas enough credit. They played their game, right? Like, they won a lot of pucks. They got a lot of pucks deep. They went down and, and retrieved them. Uh, controlled, I think, you know, times in that game. I, I thought they were really good, um, you know, at least collapsing and getting sticks on McDavid in transition. Um, you know, do I think Connor McDavid had a bad game, or do you want to give credit for a team defending them well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I, give, I just give Vegas credit for playing their game, and I think their version of hockey, the way that team is put together, and if they stay healthy, I mean, you know, make sure that, you know, you don't lose a stone, you don't lose a carrier. Those guys, you know, remain healthy and stay in the lineup, and um, and they stay out of the penalty box. I mean, they continue to be the least penalized team in the NHL. You have to have that against Edmonton. If you give Edmonton power plays, you know, you know, four or five power plays a game, you will lose this series. If you give them one or two a game, then I think you win the series. And then it gets into a little gray area in between. If Edmonton's getting two, three, four power plays a game, you know, if you give them four, there's probably a pretty good chance they're going to score two. So that's why it's just imperative that, you know, they play the games clean and and stay disciplined to their game plan and get it deep and go get it be physical. Um, Edmonton's going to score, but I do think that there's enough firepower for Vegas and depth that I think they can win the series. Bob, do you already know your schedule next week? What are you on early in the week? Yeah, so uh, TNT is covering this series all week. Uh, Sunday, we are flying to Edmonton, and so we're going to do Monday night's game in the Edmonton-Vegas series uh, in Edmonton. And at least for our crew, what I think the game plan is, is we will then rejoin uh, the Seattle-Dallas series and do the rest, not all of the rest of those games, maybe like three of the four that remain. Um, You know, truthfully, like, we even wait to find out where the games are airing. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, it's, uh, but that's just the nature of splitting a package with another carrier, right? And so we've got the NBA, Turner's got the NBA. We've got the NHL, Turner's got the NHL. And I, it's way above my pay grade. I am way lower on the food chain than anyone <laughs> that even wants to be in that boardroom trying to right. figure out who gets what game and where to put it. I just wait for them to tell me where to go and I hop on a plane and go. But I do know, at least for now, that I think the plan is that the, uh, that Monday night we will be uh, at the second Edmonton game, um, you know, in this series. All right, we'll be watching. We'll be listening. Great job on game one, and thanks for the time. All right, guys, thanks. There he is, ESPN play-by-play voice on hockey, Bob Wischusen. 
Schofield and company will be right back. Keep it here on ESPN Las Vegas, 1100 AM and 100.9 FM. Our big Cinco discussion's coming up. We've got uh, Juan Juarez Norte with us, uh, formerly JBT, JJN. You truly are. You truly are part of the people. That's right. Your wife. You've gotten more into your background over the years. I'm very intrigued to hear more about it. So uh, I'm on TikTok last night like I am every night. And uh, by the way, I was getting crap yesterday from Adam Hill. Why am I still watching that? Do you realize when you listen to the show, the vast sound crew, about 80% of our sound is from TikTok. So that's why I'm on there, because there is stuff that's covered on there in little snippets that mainstream websites don't cover like this. I'm intrigued by the fact that we've got the WNBA season coming up, and Mark Davis just built the Aces of Palace. They're raving about it. Listen to Candace Parker here with Dr. Dre, Draymond Green, talking about just how far the sport has advanced by getting a facility of their own. One team has one of these you know, grandiose facilities. I've been in the WNBA for 16 years, and I have not had a locker where it has my name on it, and I can leave my and they come back and know my going to be there. Really? I fought so hard to, like, bring the WNBA along that I've never had a practice facility where I can just go get shots up at night. We've always really? shared a practice. Yes. And so my thing is, is I deserve that. I've worked my ass off and have been a part of growing the WNBA. I want my last couple years, my last year, this is it. I want this to be something that I look back on and I'm like, man, like I've seen progress. This is where we started and this is where we're at right now. How crazy is that? So part of Candace Parker's legacy is being part of an organization run by Mark Davis who's going to break the bank, right? MD is not allowed to spend more on players, right? They already got caught kind of trying to circumvent whatever the salary structure was. So he's like, all right, well, then they're going to get something that's Raiders-like for their facility. So stop me on that. Yeah. It would be if the, if the WNBA tried to stop them, they, the publicity on that, the negative, would be outrageous. Now, think about what she just said. She's never had a locker of her own. They've never had a place to go and get shots up late night. I'm watching TikTok yesterday, and I'm seeing pictures, and this is all over Twitter, social media. Angel Reese, who's in college at LSU, is standing next to a new Mercedes that she just got. She's still in college. Listen to uh, this site is Sports Court. Listen to this guy talk about Angel Reese and her new ride. LSU-focused Bayou Collective helped with the partnership, and the deal was executed through the Matchpoint Connection Marketplace. Part of the car will be paid off in an NIL deal, and another part will be paid off by Angel herself. The cost of the EQS 580, which Angel will be driving, begins at $125,000. Big body bands, remember, I used to be dusty. Big body bands, remember, I used to be dusty. Big body bands, remember, I used to be dusty. Now I want my money, all hunters in a rush, please. And that's how she had actually tagged. That was her hashtag. Yeah. Um, the pictures of the car. 125000 It looked like it was dressed up a little bit. So in excess of $125,000, we just heard from one of the legends of the WNBA is like, yay, I have a locker. Angel Reese just got, the LSU star just got probably one hundred forty or $50,000 Mercedes. Um, here's another TikTok site talking about where Angel Reese is uh, from an NIL standpoint uh, this last season and where she could be going. 
Does Angel Reese have the most NIL deals? Yes. She has the most deals of any college women's or men's basketball players. She has 17 different brand partnerships. They all range of different things, like it's Coach Bags, Amazon, Wingstop, Raisin Cane. They projected that this season she made $392,000. That was before they won the championship game. So I just know now she's going to get a big bag, run it up. And if they thought she had a lot before, it's going to be nuts after. How crazy is that? Mm-hmm. 17 deals. Uh, we'll go back to that sports court guy because he mentions more partners in this NIL deal and then kind of pits it against what's happening in the WNBA. A female college basketball star makes more money on her NIL than she would on a WNBA contract. Plus, you star Angel Reese a.k.a. the Bayou Barbie, has earned nearly $400,000 across 17 partnerships, which includes Jansport, Bose, McDonald's, and Xfinity, among other companies. In comparison, the number one pick in last year's WNBA draft earns around $70,000 for the season. So Angel is earning over five times that amount just in NIL deals. That's incredible. Uh, We had seen a video of Angel Reese and one of her teammates on The Breakfast Club, right? Yeah. Uh, FM Morning Show in New York. And Angel Reese actually said, man, they got to get it right in the WNBA or we're not sure we're going to be playing in the WNBA. That's incredible. We might have to pass up on the opportunity. I think that's a little misguided. So Kelsey Plum from the Aces was in with us the other day. And I posed the question to her about, you know, what's going on here with the money that the biggest stars in NCAA are making versus you guys. I heard Angel Reese last week say she was kind of in on the whole, hey, WNBA needs to step up. Hey, you know what? If they don't treat us right, you know, the, the, the next stars, that we could just not play in the WNBA. What would you tell them about the benefits of playing professional basketball? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I would say, first of all, I don't think they're wrong. I think that there's a new generation that are paving, like, different type of territory we've never seen i mean some of the highest nil makers are female college basketball players you know we're growing and you know by 2025 uh you know there'll be there's a lot of tv talks a lot of uh broadcasting stuff going on possibly a new cba thing so i mean listen they're making money but there are people in the w that make money too and a lot of them are on our team there you go so the aces are doing well but this is the first time i can remember college sports pushing a professional sports league on what salary is going to be and how to monetize the sport. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, too, the, the difference is is that you only have a certain amount of years you can get into LSU or you know play there, right? So you want to make as much money as you possibly can and then go to the WNBA. But I think it makes sense to forego right, right, an extra year and stay in and make some money. And it also, I think the, un, you know, the non-monetized version of it is just being like the big head on campus, right, and having that college life for a while and being the talk of the town because that's something that really works. And good for LSU, too, by the way. You track some of these NIL deals, not just for, you know, Angel Reese, but for female athletes. They have three of the top four out there that are being tracked. Come hang with Cofield and Company at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside TI. Free parking, great food and drink specials, and giveaways. Every Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside TI. All right, Caleb, what's up, buddy? Uh, everything is up in the NBA playoffs. I'm fired up still about it, even though <laughs> Lakers stunk it up last time out. But I'm good. How how you guys doing? We're good. We're good. Kayla, what was your last year playing uh, college quarterback? 2013, 14. Technically, New Year's Day, 2014. Could you ever imagine us doing a story on air about 
an LSU female basketball player who made three hundred ninety-two grand last year and is probably headed towards a million this coming season. Back then, no, God, yeah. no, no. I, I, mean, I couldn't imagine it for any college athlete back then. Yeah. That's how that's how fast this thing has changed. You know, yep. a decade later, we're talking about millionaire college athletes. It's crazy. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool that it's turned the corner and now everyone, at least at the top of the food chain, gets to share in how big, how popular, how much money college sports makes. All right, NBA. Was that a meltdown by the Lakers or just a lack of adjustments, a lack of aggression from Anthony Davis, and also not putting AD in better position so that it could be versatile and not doubled so easily? Uh, I think it was a mix of, of a, a couple of different things. I think, one, it's Anthony Davis being Anthony Davis, which is one of the most frustrating superstars ever in the history of basketball, right? To like have this Jekyll and Hyde kind of uh, impersonation going on where he's, he's the best player in the NBA one game. And then the very next game out, he's a, a pedestrian player. Like he's a guy fighting for a roster spot. <laughs> but it's it, that's what Anthony Davis has been for the last four years. Um, but I think it's also a bit of uh, the chess match of a series, right? I think the Lakers came in with a very focused mindset to uh, to – to take or split and get home court advantage. And then also, I think every time a team loses, the losing team has to make an adjustment, a bigger adjustment to make the game even or to come out and win the next game. So the Warriors, I think, showed their hand with a big adjustment. Obviously, starting green, going small with their starting lineup um, was a big change and changed the game plan. I think what the Lakers are holding on to, and this is my hope, I think what the Lakers are holding on to is a major adjustment, which is, to just put Anthony Davis in post-up situations instead of trying to get him the ball in pick-and-roll situations. Um, because I think if he just posted up on the low block every time, he's going to either foul Draymond Green out or have a, a distinct advantage against whoever else they try to guard Anthony Davis with. Um, I think that's the adjustment maybe that the Lakers make for Game 3 and, and Game 4, which is get AD more touches in the post or just around the rim. But I think overall, Game 2 is just a terrible display of energy and effort the Lakers, which this is what worries me about them, at their best, they are a legit title contender. But they are not at their best all the time. And they're the least consistent team of the teams remaining in the playoffs. They like You don't know what you're going to get from them. So they could either be uh, you know, a team that wins it all or a team that gets swept by the Warriors for the next – or you know, gentlemen sweep by the Warriors if they mm. play like that. Uh, so it, that's the frustrating thing about being a Lakers fan right now. I was utterly disappointed with the way the Suns played down the stretch in game two against Denver – it's like Kevin Durant is just, you know, a fifth option, a sixth option. Like They couldn't get him the ball. They didn't get him the ball when it counted, and, you know, Booker, uh, you know, he needed a heat check, and I think a lot of that is because CP3 was out, and he's expected to be out. All right, here we go. Sorry, I get distracted by the – yeah, listen up. Crank it up. Uh, mariachi in the background. But uh, staying on point, I get excited. <laughs> staying on point. <laughs> um, can they win the series without CP3 if he's out for games three to five? No, and I don't think they were going to win the series even if CP3 stays. I, I don't think he's uh, that impactful as far as scoring points. And you saw, you see the Denver Nuggets have too many options and too many weapons. They're too well-built as a team uh, to let just the, the, the greatness of Kevin Durant and, and Booker win. So I don't, I don't think – I think the series is all but over. Possibly a gentleman sweep. Wouldn't be surprised if it was a sweep here, especially with Chris Paul being out. Um, but this is what happened. And this, Colin Coward said something about it on his show about uh, leadership and what leaders are um, and having a true alpha on your team, how much it matters. I don't think Kevin Durant has ever been a true alpha on the floor. And I think that's what we're seeing here with the Suns. He's never been the guy to initiate or be aggressive and take over as talented as he is and as capable as he is of being that guy. 
he's never been the leader of the team. And it, it, he can say what he wants. It's not a shot at Kevin Durant. It's not me trying to attain his legacy. And he's a great player. I, I love Kevin Durant. But it's just the honest truth. What you're seeing is his inability to be the leader on a team. And that's why you need Chris Paul. Uh, that's why he needs to go to a place that has a Steph Curry. Or that's why Russell Westbrook was so important to his career early on is because he needs that leader. And that's why, frankly, the Nets didn't work out. James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant, none of them are true leaders. Like, they're not the leaders of a team. Um, so Kevin Durant now finds himself where he's forced to be a leader again, and he's coming up mm -hmm. short. And unfortunately, it's going to be a, a mark on his uh, ledger, uh, on his legacy. And that's that's just the truth of it. But uh, this Suns team was not built to win a championship. It was, it was the uh, old thought of putting talent together is how you win, and that – I thought was proven wrong long ago, right? When when LeBron James went to the Heat and everybody thought eight championships were coming and they lost the first year, <laughs> um, and that 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 should have been some sample evidence of like, hey, you can't just put talented names on a roster and expect to win. I thought the Suns gave away way too much from what I thought was already a championship roster in order to get a superstar name. I, I thought it a bit unnecessary uh, for the organization, but this is they pushed all their chips to the middle of the table and it's going to come up short. I, I think they're going to fail to reach the goal of championship or bust this year, and it's going to end in, uh, with Denver. Cofield and company, ESPN Las Vegas, Golden Circle Sportsbook, and Bar on Cinco de Mayo, Caleb Herring, football analyst, basketball fan, basketball expert. Why not, right? Um, the Bucks got rid of Budenholzer, and I understand there's a whole dynamic here with star players and can you keep a coach around for more than five or six years. But the funny thing here is, and we can also tie in Nick Nurse, both of these guys who got fired are going to be scooped up immediately. So did the Bucks make the right move? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think through their eyes, at least through the organization's eyes, they failed this year and clearly kind of failed embarrassingly by getting bounced in the first round. Um, and I think there are some glaring coaching decisions that uh, I think definitely stand out with the Miami Heat series loss and uh, lack of adjustments, I guess, that they made against the Heat that point to Bodenholzer as the, as, the, as the issue. But I think with what Milwaukee had going and with the other kind of uncertainties with Middleton and, and who you're going to keep and re-sign and some contracts coming up, I, I think it, aging Brooke Lopez is part of – I think it was time for that kind of Milwaukee Bucks way for the last four to five years uh, that we've seen in Milwaukee, that think what they've constructed. I think it was about time. That time had expired on that formula. I don't know where that leaves the rest of the roster uh, because I think Budenholzer is not the, the, the only piece that needs to change if you're going to make changes. Uh, there's a lot that's going to have to happen to revamp Milwaukee and make them a surefire contender. And uh, Giannis's style of play and his limitations is one of those things, right? Like his inability to shoot free throws down the stretch should be addressed. His lack of uh, addressing the season as a failure uh, should be addressed, right? Uh, those kinds of things. Um, but there's not very many teams that go that long, especially these days, without a major shakeup like this. The Warriors being the one exception. Like they, they've, they've really survived what should have been the revamp uh, or restructure your roster and, your, and shake up the coaching staff with Steve Kerr and Steph Curry. Uh, and that's part of the greatness of what they've got going on. They've kind of survived it. Other franchises, this with the turnaround and the turnover and the, pray, the player freedom um, these days, uh, you, you have to make these kind of shakeups sooner rather than later i don't understand it for the bucks necessarily until we see the rest of the roster shakeups like if they're really planning on blowing this thing up and shaking it down to the bones then yeah it makes sense but uh we'll see if they can hold on to Giannis uh throughout this transition or if they just try to rebuild around him again with with other uh, pieces and other players around him. caleb i got two minutes left so um let me play a cut for you 
reaction to the NFL draft and the fact that, one, a lot of quarterbacks were drafted. I think there's an economic uh, theory on that one. But also that mobile guys, smaller guys, were drafted a lot more often than we normally see. And I thought RG3 had a pretty interesting take on the way quarterbacks were picked in this draft. My biggest takeaway was the seismic shift in how NFL evaluators look at the quarterback position. When you talk about the quarterbacks, three of the first four draft picks were quarterbacks, and three of them were black quarterbacks. That's historical in its own context, but I think NFL evaluators used to frown upon guys who were athletic and had creativity in the pocket if they weren't a proven pocket passer. Now, in today's game, that is coveted, and to me, that represents the shift in what the new prototypical NFL quarterback looks like. Caleb? Uh, there's just pit, bits and pieces that I agree with and I like about this. I think the shift in, in what is prototypical, quote-unquote, I, I don't think really um, there should be a prototypical quarterback. I think what works works, and we don't know what works until we test it, right? Um, I, I, I understand the historic nature of, and I got into kind of a discussion on Twitter about this. I understand the historic nature of mentioning and saying that the top three quarterbacks are black quarterbacks and how huge that is and how monumental that is. I personally want to get to a day where that's not a headline, uh, where that's not even something that we think about. Like it's just three quarterbacks went top four and that's, you know, we don't have to mention the fact they're black. I understand we're not there maybe as a country as a whole yet. People want that to be new still, but I, yeah. I for one am, am at the point where, okay, the top two quarterbacks, the top two highest paid players uh, in the history of the sport are black quarterbacks as well. I you know, can I can I cut in for a second? The, the funny thing is, he eventually gets to cre- athletic and creative. I actually think that uh, Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud really are pocket quarterbacks, and they're the smaller yeah. guys. And then Richardson's the behemoth at 240 pounds and six four, and he's the guy who's more of the athlete and creative. And if he gets downhill, he's like a freaking running, he's like a fullback. It is. Yeah. That's what. That's the thing we need to get away from because then we have these stupid comparisons where you know every big guy who can run is in josh allen or you're trying to compare him to vince young it's that we need to kind of break the mold on that and that that's absolutely kind of the direction i go with this too i think every quarterback should be evaluated for their own merit it doesn't matter what your body type is it doesn't matter if you look this way or if you're this color or if you whatever the case may be can you play the position or not and do you fit our scheme our system what we're trying to do as a football franchise that should be the only evaluation. I, I think there's all kind of narratives that get jumped up for all positions when you're talking about the draft and, and, and these players. But I think there's some that just need to go away. Now, with, with the mold switching, we'll see. That, that, that's the thing about it. We can't be all excited about the change and be excited about, hey, these quarterbacks are getting a shot now. And yeah. then when they don't pan out, try to back away from the conversation. We'll see if it pans out. We'll see the league ship actually works once they get into the NFL and start playing some real games. Caleb, we're up against it. You're a radio pro. We appreciate it. Have a good Cinco. You better go out and do something. Come on now. Come on now. Carnage Sider for me, baby. I'm loving it.